Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, ahead of the 2018 Pandemian Book Prize announcement. Here's David Hepworth on his book Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rock Stars. David Hepworth has been writing about, broadcasting about and speaking about music since the 1970s. He was involved in the launch and or editing of magazines like Smash Hits, Q, Mojo and The Word, among many others. He was one of the presenters of the BBC rock music programme Whistle Test and one of the anchors of the corporation's coverage of Live Aid in 1985 and has won Editor of the Year and Writer of the Year awards from the Professional Publishers Association and the Mark Boxer Award from the British Society of Magazine Editors. And David is the author of Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rock Stars, which is one of the shortlisted books for the 2018 Pendarian Book Prize. David, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me what the idea is behind Uncommon People, first of all? Well, I'd, uh, the first book I'd written was uh, about 1971, which started with my theory that 1971 was the Annus Mirabilis of the rock and roll album. And so that was the first book, and that did quite well. And when they talked to me about doing another book, I said, well, I want to write something about rock stars. I want to write something about rock stars as a kind of as a tribe, as a social group, because, you know, I've had a certain amount of uh, opportunity to observe them, both as a kind of fan as, and as a professional and as a broadcaster in all kinds of different ways. And I was just interested in how they behaved as a group and um, and what a strong influence they had on, on the last, you know, 40 or 50 years, that they were, they were kind of fantasy friends for many people. You know, we acquired them when we were about 13 or 14 years old. And of course, we never expected them to have long careers. And so, but they did have really long careers. And so, consequently, people are are still kind of uh, looking at them in their fifties and sixties and their seventies and so forth. And so that that's very interesting. It seems to me that relationship between fans and rock stars and the kind of people that we elect to be rock stars is interesting. And what the process of them becoming rock stars does to them is interesting as well. And um, it just struck me when I sat down to um, to think about it more closely. We don't have any rock stars anymore. They belong to the past, it seems to me. And so, consequently, the book became, you know, the rise and fall of the rock star, which kind of starts in the mid-50s with Elvis Presley and Little Richard. And it's kind of all over in the mid-90s. 
pretty much over my defining ending uh, there in the book is uh, is the death of Kurt Cobain, which I think brings to a close the era of the rock star. And we're now in a different era. We're well into the era of hip-hop. We're probably almost through the era of hip-hop. And I think it's just interesting to kind of look at them as a historical idea. You know, because as I say in the book, they're a bit like the cowboy. You know, the, the cowboy is a very strong idea in our in our psyche, but cowboys don't exist anymore. And rock stars, similarly, they hang over us, but they don't exist anymore. And it always interests me that when the uh, when rock stars as a, as a group kind of passed on, we started um, giving the characteristics of a rock star to all kinds of different people. Like we got, we had politician rock stars, you know, movie star rock stars, sports star rock stars. You could be a rock star chef. You could be a rock star absolutely anything. And it's supposed to indicate that you do something uh, with a, with a particular kind of casual approach that you you don't think very hard about the consequences. You do it with a certain kind of style. And so it interests me that the idea of a rock star hangs on, whereas the actual, the people that we call rock stars, they have passed on, really. So the book is not an exhaustive list. You choose a selection of people and they're based around a particular date in their careers. And we'll talk more about that format in a second. But first, the obvious question would be a definition of a rock star because you choose Little Richard as the first rock star in this book. But there was people before him, somebody like Chuck Berry or Bill Haley. Why Little Richard is a rock star but the others aren't? Well, I suppose I chose him as my kind of defining person because I think it's David Bowie that, that says, you know, before Little Richard, the world was in black and white and after Little Richard, the world was in technicolor. And I think he was the person who, his personality reflected the sound and the sound reflected the personality absolutely perfectly. And he was he was a figure kind of without precedent, really. He was, he was a strange, you know, wild person. There hadn't really been anybody like that. And you look, I tell the story in the book. And as you say, I focus on one day in the lives of each of these people. And the day I focused on with Little Richard is the day that he records Tutti Frutti, which, of course, is a song he never thinks he's ever going to be able to record because it's a dirty song about the kind of mechanics of anal sex that he only played for musicians after hours. And it was only in the course of a session where they were stuck for a song that bumped Well, the producer says, no, I think we... (laughs) We get those lyrics cleaned up and we'll put that out. Of course, it immediately became a huge smash all over the world. It was the kind of the starting pistol in the kind of youth rock and roll revolution in a way that I don't think Chuck Berry really was. And, you know, much as I I admire Chuck Berry, I would say I love him. Uh, I admire Chuck Berry. Uh, I think Chuck Berry belonged to an older older generation. Uh, You know, he he was kind of in his 30s at at this point, whereas Little Richard was, was young and wild and raw and so is my is my personal starting point you know there's it's a it's a very subjective uh, way of doing things you know but but uh, you know that's what i enjoy about it tell me about this particular format then why choose this sort of day format well because i just wanted to i didn't want to do a kind of complete survey of everybody's life and times i just wanted to look at how the idea of the rock star develops over the period of time so that you know so you get little richard making that record you get elvis presley going back to tupelo mississippi as a huge star you know it's elvis presley day you know you get jerry lee lewis arriving in in london with his uh 
15-year-old, you know, his child bride and, and the consequent, you know, to-do after that. And you get, you know, the Who having a, having a fallout in a dressing room in, in, in Denmark in, in 1965 and deciding that they can somehow get by with the kind of chaos that they've got. You get Janis Joplin at Monterey. You get all kinds of people. And so what I hope you'll do, what I hope it amounts to, is like a little flick book. You remember those flick books? So you can you can flick the pages past and you'll see the changing shape of the rock star during that time. Because I think it's important to stress that rock star, you know, it contained multitudes. It wasn't just this idea of somebody in leather trousers who takes a lot of cocaine and throws televisions out of hotel room windows, which is, you know, the idea that's been adopted in popular culture, I suppose. You know, the rock star contains Buddy Holly. The rock star contains Stevie Nicks, contains Ian Dury, all kinds of odd people who were just seized upon the idea of being a rock star because they kind of invent themselves as a rock star in a way that they couldn't in any other sphere of entertainment. Pretty much every other sphere of entertainment, in order to get in, you have to go through some kind of vetting process. You have to be liked by somebody. You have to go through some sort of audition. You have to jump through certain hoops. Rock stars kind of didn't have to do that. They were just allowed to make the most of whatever personality and whatever talent they had. And that's one of the things I find really interesting and really exciting. I think also at the same time, one of the things I've tried to do is to um, is to talk about the people who, for instance, I've written about Ian Stewart, who was one of the founder members of the Rolling Stones when the Rolling Stones were a six-piece. And when they signed to a record deal, the manager pretty much took him aside and said, you're not in the group anymore. And the reason he wasn't in the group anymore was his face was the wrong shape. So literally his face didn't fit. And uh, Ian Stewart was the kind of person who was quite happy with that because Ian Stewart didn't really want to be a rock star. He liked to play the piano on Rolling Stones records. He liked to go on the, on the road with them. But he wasn't bothered about being a star. Whereas most of the people I've written about in the book, they had a kind of burning desire to get over their personality as well as their music. And, and rock star, yeah, the job of rock star, the role of rock star provide them with an opportunity to do that. So how did you choose who to include and who to leave out there? And I wonder to what extent, having chosen to write it in the format that you did, that somehow might dictate who gets included. Um, well, frankly, I, I say to people, I could write it again tomorrow and I could use different examples. Indeed. You know, and, and, and that's fine. You know, because, you know, writing about the idea of Rockstar as seen through those 40 people in my story... You could, you probably have to do certain people, you know. I would pretty much say you have to do Buddy Holly and you have to do Bob Dylan. You have to do the Beatles because I think these people were immensely influential on loads and loads of other people. But people get back to me and say, oh, well, you haven't done, I don't know, you haven't done Eric Clapton in great detail or anything like that. Or you haven't done, why haven't you had Liam Gallagher? Well, you know, you start in some place and you stop in some place. And a lot of that's, you know, my personal interest in those people and wanting to tell particular stories that, to me, illuminated the idea of a rock star. That's why I did it that way. But as I say... I could do it again tomorrow and I could use a load of different examples. I didn't have Chuck Berry in it, really. 
and Chuck Berry, I ought to probably, you know, because Chuck Berry was the first person I ever saw live, and uh, he's always been immensely influential. But he, he sort of didn't fit into the way I did it, you know. So I took those decisions, and I don't have any, any regrets about taking those decisions at all. OK, well, perhaps let's have a look at a few of the people you do include. And you've mentioned Buddy Holly a couple of times already. Tell us what's so significant about him, and then we can talk about the day you actually chose, because that's also a very significant day. Well, Buddy Holly, I think, in the process of writing this book i came to the conclusion that buddy holly is the single most influential rock star because unlike elvis presley who looked as if he came from venus you know and uh unlike little richard who looks as if he came out the woods buddy holly just looked like the boy next door and he acted like the boy next door. And he wrote songs inspired by the names of his girlfriend or you know, things that had happened to him or movies he'd seen. And, for instance, when Buddy Holly came to Britain, on the one occasion he came to Britain, he appeared on Sunday night at the London Palladium. And, uh, you know, the young John Lennon at home sat there in front of the telly. And this was in the days when you couldn't repeat the performance. You were only going to see it once. And he just looked at this guy and looked at the shapes his fingers were making on the fretboard of his guitar. And he thought, I could do that. This is a guy singing about his life in a really simple musical format with a bunch of guys who appear to be his friends. I could do that. And um, I think that whole generation of people who became enormously famous and influential in the 60s, and obviously the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones, I think they were the children of Buddy Holly. I think they were the generation who looked at Buddy Holly and thought, we could do that. And many of them went on to record Buddy Holly songs on their early albums and never lost their affection for Buddy Holly. And so I think that was it was the combination of he was very talented, but he was also, he was kind of ordinary. He was the guy next door. I think he was, uh, he was responsible for inspiring a whole generation of musicians. And I even, it even fascinates me, you know, that uh, I go down the tube at Oxford Circus and still nowadays there's still somebody who dresses up as Hank Marvin and plays Shadows hits. And, of course, Hank Marvin's entire visual image came from Buddy Holly, you know. So it's, it's the idea that, that still hangs on, you know, 50, 40, 50 years later is, is a tribute to the immense power of Buddy Holly. Well, I have to say, you also suggest that Hank Marvin himself is a lot more influential than he's given credit for. I think he undoubtedly is. He's the first guitar hero. He's the guitar hero's guitar hero, you know. So if you ask Jimmy Page or Eric Clapton, you know, who was the person who kind of, they looked at and thought, I can do that. It's Hank Marvin. And also, there was something in the idea of Hank Marvin, you know, I can remember as a youngster seeing Hank Marvin, you know, miming to the shadows doing a wonderful land on the television. And uh, he kind of looked vaguely noble. (laughs) And that was one of the ideas that appealed to me that I think What happened with guitars was that they became the kind of musical equivalent of the toy guns that that generation had all grown up with. They'd all grown up with cowboys. They'd all grown up with the heritage of the war and so forth. And they all had toy guns. And they loved equipment. 
And the guitar, you know, the affordable electric guitar was exotic, but it was also, it was a piece of kit. It was a piece of equipment. And there's something interesting to me about the fact that we had guitar heroes. We never had saxophone heroes. We never had piano heroes. You don't have drum heroes. There's something about a guitar. There's something sort of noble about it, something that keys in to some kind of ancient ancient tradition. And I think Hank Marvin was the first person, certainly in Britain, to do that. And he's a figure who still kind of hovers over popular music today, many, many years later. So, yes, I think he was uh, an underrated figure. Just returning to Buddy Holly then, so the 3rd of February 1959 is the is the date that you've chosen to focus on. And that's the date of another first, which is the first rock star death. Well, yes, and, and of course, not just his death. You know, the death also in the same plane of of the Big Bopper and, and Richie Valens. And uh, it's a terribly, obviously, a tragic story. It's archetypal in the sense that he was only on the road because he had no money. He'd had all these hits, but all his money was tied up in litigation with his former manager. And so he had to go on the road in, in winter in the most you know, northerly, least hospitable parts of the United States, playing these godforsaken ballrooms up in, up in Fargo country. And he took, he took a plane ride that night after the gig in order to get to the next town, in order to do his laundry because nobody on that tour bus had been able to do their laundry. And so they were driving around in freezing conditions with this fetid pile of laundry in the back of the bus. And, uh, you know, he decided something had to be done about this. And so they took the plane ride that night in order to get to the town, in order to do their laundry in time for the gig and to pick it up. And, of course tragically you know that plane came down pretty much straight after takeoff and that became one of my first memories of buddy holly was there was a record called the buddy holly story and he had a story because a story had an end and then you know that's obviously tragic but it was part of his it became huge part of his myth and you know as i think I think Elvis Costello said many years later, you know, it's the great tragedy in rock and roll is if, if you stick around long enough to witness your own decline. Well, Buddy Holly never did. And so his legend is preserved intact because of the tragedy of his death. And his death is a huge part of his uh, of the appeal of his songs. He, he gives his songs a kind of an, an additional resonance that, that they wouldn't otherwise have. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to David Hepworth. We're talking about his book, Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rock Stars, which is shortlisted for this year's Pendering Book Prize. And David, you've mentioned Janis Joplin, who you describe as the first female rock star. And the date of the 18th of June 1967, which is based around her appearance at the... uh, at the Monterey Festival. And again, there were other women artists around this time, people like Dusty Springfield. What was different about Janis Joplin? Well, there were obviously, you know, significant female stars in it. You know, I have to think Dusty Springfield is a greater artist than Janis Joplin. But Dusty Springfield did not wear her personality on the outside in the way that Janis Joplin did. And that's what made Janis Joplin a rock star in a way that Dusty Springfield just wasn't. Dusty Springfield was a terrific singer, but she was a kind of well-behaved conventional entertainer as opposed to a rock star. And what people liked about Janis Joplin, well, put it this way, what people liked about Dusty Springfield was how she sang. What people liked about Janis Joplin was how she acted. And the singing kind of came after the acting. And she was the first kind of prominent female star who'd behaved in a way that... uh, female stars simply had not behaved before you know she took to the stage with a a bottle of whiskey and she was very open about her sexual appetites and there was nothing nothing polished about her and also she wasn't she wasn't attractive you know she wasn't physically attractive and most female musicians female singers had been prior to that whereas this was the opportunity what interests me is round about this time, you get, and this is 1967, you get Janis Joplin, you get Pete Townsend, and you get Frank Zappa. And they all, oddly enough, sold a lot of posters. And I can remember these, these posters of, of these people because they were kind of glorifying the fact that they weren't pretty. You know, they were kind of glorifying ugliness in a way. And being a rock star allowed them to do that. And uh, what fascinates me about Janis Joplin is that she was a lot more ambitious than she wanted anybody to believe, as was something she had in common with pretty much everybody who came along in that psychedelic wave of, you know, 66, 67. And so what happens is 
she's there at the Monterey Festival and she's singing with Big Brother and the Holding Companies, which which is ostensibly a group, but it's not really a group at all. She's the star. And, uh, and they refuse to allow themselves to be filmed because the idea is that it's going to be filmed. Jimi Hendrix was filmed, Otis Redding was filmed, everybody else was filmed, but they wouldn't allow themselves to be filmed because they thought they were kind of above that. Anyway, she did the show on the Saturday and tore it up. It went really well. And uh, after the Saturday show, they went back to her and said, we really think you should allow yourself to be filmed and we'll put you on again on the Sunday to allow your, your performance to be filmed. And it was very successfully and significantly between the first performance and the second performance, she traded in her kind of hippie weeds in which she performed on the Saturday to appear in a kind of gold lame catsuit on the Sunday show. You know, so she knew what she wanted to be. She wanted to be a really big rock star. She wanted to take all the kind of rejection that she'd had in her time growing up and university and so forth. At university, she was she was voted the ugliest man on campus. And so everything that happened in Janis Joplin's life after that was an attempt to get back, to get revenge for that slight, another slight like it. And she did, you know, for a few years. But tragically, you know, it didn't last and it was it was all over in 1970 when she died. Just one more of the entries then I want to talk about. So this is the entry for the 31st of September 1983 and we're at the Continental Hyatt House in Hollywood and a band has just finished a tour of the United States, a British band. Tell us why these people are included. (laughs) Well, the date doesn't exist. (laughs) No calendar has the dates. Because here we talk about Spinal Tap. And I wanted to include Spinal Tap because I think they've been immensely influential on our idea of what a rock star is. What they very cleverly did at that point was to suggest that rock stars, as well as being figures, uh, you know, that we might venerate and we might want to be like and might want to sleep with and we might want to buy their records, they're also looked at in a certain light ludicrous. They're figures of fun. And this is particularly the case, and I think Spinal Tap does this really well, because you're looking at a bunch of guys in their, in their late 30s, early 40s, wearing clothes that should only be worn by 22-year-old men, and they, they just look ludicrous. But they're trying to keep up the act, you know, they're trying to keep up their kind of outrage and their youthful fire right into middle age while carrying with them all the squabbles and the jealousies that you know occur within any group of uh, uh, of men particularly who've been together a long long time and so i think once you've let the idea of spinal tap into the rock star firmament it's always there hovering you know it doesn't matter who you're looking at once you've seen that joke you can never quite look rock stars in entirely the same way again because you glimpse the kind of desperation of people hanging on trying to repeat self-consciously something that they very often did early on really unselfconsciously thinking that they would be able to go on and do it forever and of course it's really difficult to do it forever and so that's why i wanted to have them in the book and i'm very glad i did actually 
And you mentioned, you know, this idea that the film had shown behind the curtain and so anybody that came afterwards would really have to be something special not to seem ridiculous. And indeed, your very next chapter is about Michael Jackson, who certainly does that. Well, yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, then I, I think with Michael Jackson also, what what's happening in the eighties? And I remember this, you know, very very clearly because I was there at Live Aid and so forth. You know, because what happens in the latter half of the eighties is the scale of the whole thing just absolutely explodes, way beyond the scale of the. You know, the seventies look quite modest compared to the eighties because you know what happened is is you had people performing to crowds the size of which nobody had ever seen before, you know, not to witness music particularly. And then the spectacle gets bigger and bigger in order to justify the price, which is there, you know, related to the scale of the thing. And so it becomes a a kind of war of dimensions after that, you know. It's less and less about music and more and more about scale and about stardom and about money and uh, yeah michael jackson is uh, is undoubtedly you know one of the one of the key figures because what michael jackson wants to be is just bigger than anybody else and uh, started to get out of, out of control at that point in the 80s and and then comes to an end in the 90s because no, nobody can kind of hold together the sort of sincerity of the basic rock star promise with the scale that you're expected to operate at in the 90s, which is my, my, my last rock star is Kurt Cobain, because I think Kurt Cobain, tragically, I think he felt the accumulated responsibility of all the rock stars whose footsteps he felt he was expected to follow in. You know, he, he felt he was expected to be Johnny Rotten. He was expected to be Bob Dylan. Elvis Presley, whoever. But also, he was operating on a level that those guys had never operated on at all. He was making sums of money that they probably never made. He was selling records in numbers that they probably never sold themselves. And he was expected to perform at a scale they never performed at themselves. And I think he felt that, you know, obviously, Kurt Cobain had his own personal difficulties. Um, But I do think his worry about the responsibility of being a rock star was one of the things that led to his death. Whereas you go back to Little Richard, my first rock star, I don't think there's no responsibility at all. He's making it up as it goes along. Well, Kurt Cobain is your last legit rock star in this book, but he's not the end of the book, and you finish off with another person who's been described erroneously as a rock star, a guy called Mark Anderson. So who is he? Well, he's the guy behind Netscape, the first uh, big web browser, and uh, I thought it was, it was interesting, because the year after Kurt Cobain dies, you have the you know, initial public offering of Netscape. And suddenly you get nerds like Mark Andreessen, and you get Bill Gates, and you get Steve Jobs and all these people. These people become the next generation of rock stars. And they're the ones that people envy and want to be like. And they're the people who make fortunes out of the kind of technical side of the dispensing of entertainment rather than the artistic side of entertainment. And uh, it struck me that, uh, that that's one of the things that had happened with the rock star. The rock star idea had fled into a million different occupations, but I felt nerd was one of them. And uh, I also wanted to make the point that, um, you know, I think one of the things that's made it impossible to be a rock star in the year 2018 
is social media. Because I, I simply, you know, if rock stars nowadays, if they existed, if they behaved today the way that Jimmy Page or David Bowie behaved in 1972, they would be forced to apologise to us on a weekly basis. They would be apologising on the news because we would get to know about the things that they did thanks to social media and we would expect them to apologise for the very things we used to admire them for doing. And I think we live in a you know, very censorious age and I think social media is a huge part of that. And so the irony is that the thing that killed the um, record business, which is downloading and streaming and so forth, was also the same thing that, you know, in a different way, killed the idea of the rock star. Just one more thing from me then, David. What does it mean for you that the book has been shortlisted for the Pandarian Prize? Well, it'd be very nice to... Oh, it's, it's an honour... Uh, I feel I have to say this. It's an honour to be nominated. It's very nice to be nominated. I think there's a lot of very fine music books around at the moment. You know, I used to work in the music magazine trade. That used to be a really strong business. It's not anymore. But I think people still read our music. And I think there are loads of uh, fine music books to read about it in. And I'm just glad I'm one of them on this shortlist. So I've been talking to David Hepworth. We've been talking about his book, Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rockstars. David, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.